Chapter 35 of The Ocean of Air Meteorology for Beginners. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ocean of Air Meteorology for Beginners by Agnes G. Byrne. Chapter 35 Insects of the Air. From countless myriads of invisible germs, floating and multiplying in air and water, we pass upward to higher and more complex beings, the winged insects of the atmosphere. The ocean of air is an ocean of life, teeming with creatures that breathe and move. These are of all kinds. Grade by grade, from the lowest microscopic organisms, they rise in a steady progression, through creeping and fluttering things innumerable, till higher stages are reached. The insects of the air, multitudinous forms of life are concluded in this term. Insect is a word often used loosely, often wrongly applied. Spiders are commonly called insects, yet really they are nothing of the kind. The same mistake is made about woodlice, centipedes, and other creatures. A true insect among diverse characteristics, must always be divided into three parts, the head being so far separate as to move independently of the body. It must also have six legs and two antennae or feelers. It must breathe by means of air tubes instead of lungs. It must pass through a succession of changes leading on to the perfect winged state. A spider has eight legs instead of six, so it cannot be an insect. Also, if you examine a fly and a spider, you will see at once how freely the fly can turn and twist his little head about, while the spider's head is part of his body. The breathing tubes of insects are very curious. They are made of an exceedingly thin membrane of skin, and they are kept in shape always open for the passage of air by a kind of stiff thread like very fine wire wound in close spirals within the tubes throughout the whole length. These tubes pervade every part of an insect's body, even the legs and feet. The smaller tubes run into bigger ones, and the biggest lead to little openings or holes in the sides of the insect, through which air passes in and out. Insects can no more live without plenty of oxygen than man can. To give in a single chapter any full details of the enormous hosts of winged insects which throng the ocean of air is a simple impossibility. Their names alone in a dry monotonous list would far overflow the space I have to spare. Chapters might be filled with short descriptions of British varieties, letting alone those of foreign lands. But to see the insect in its full power and beauty, as well as in its full unpleasantness, one must journey towards the tropics. The mosquito misery is pretty well known to all travellers in South Europe at certain seasons of the year, as well as to all dwellers within the tropics. Anglo-Indians are apt to wax eloquent describing past wakeful nights, vain hunts after vanishing foe, frantic endurance of a shrill, unquenchable buzz, and spotted swollen faces for many a day following. Yet the mosquitoes have their use. Devouring travelers is not the normal occupation of the mosquito. 
Footnote. Yi Ji Wood. The greater number of facts in this chapter are culled from his delightful insect volumes. End of footnote. It is merely a little passing entertainment, belonging to its last and highest stage of existence. Before becoming a perfect insect, the mosquito dwells under water as a grub or larva, and there it feeds vigorously upon minute specks of decaying substance, thus helping to render the water pure. Of all insect pests, none is greater than that of the locust, a creature seldom met with in England. Some few locusts appear, perhaps, every year, but many reported as such are really some other insect, mistaken for the distinguished foreigner. In hotter lands, the migratory locust is a fearful scourge. When once the warning signs are noted of the coming peril, no human power can avert it. Nothing but a change of wind is of any avail. Where the air currents flow, there the locusts go, helplessly, and as if without will of steerage power. Countless hordes of brown creatures darken the atmosphere. Opposition seems useless, for nothing turns them aside. Brushwood over a wide track is set blazing, and still the mighty swarm sweeps by, myriads upon myriads dying in the flames, while yet the army as a whole seems undiminished. I have spoken of their advent as a peril, and so indeed it is, not directly but indirectly, a peril to human life. For when once the locust army settles, the country around is doomed. Grain, fruit, vegetables, leaves, flowers, all are ruthlessly devoured. A visitation of locusts in the east means a famine to follow. Cattle die for lack of food, so meat as well as corn and vegetables fail. Parts of southern Europe have often suffered from locusts, but it is in Asia and Africa that they are seen in fullest force. One vast array of Indian locusts extended in length to no less than five hundred miles, and as the swarm flew by, the air was so darkened that big buildings only two hundred yards off were almost blotted out. Other insect plagues might be mentioned also. There is the fly torment of a hot summer and of tropical climates. There are wasp torments, cockroach torments, spider torments, the worry and distress to human beings of almost any kind of superabounding insect. More serious pests than these exist in such creatures as the famous tsetse fly of Africa, which exterminates with its deadly sting all large quadrupeds throughout the district where it lives. If ever the tsetse makes its way to British shores, and finds British air to agree with its constitution, then good-bye to our flocks of sheep, our herds of cattle, our fine breeds of horses. Not one of them could stand against the tsetse. Among the fairer and more innocent creatures which float through the blue depths over our heads, the short-lived mayfly is perhaps one of the most abundant. As a perfect insect it lasts commonly but a few hours, since no food is needed for so short an existence, it has no mouth. The brief span is passed in a merry, though monotonous dance upon the summer air. In some parts of Europe mayflies have multiplied to such an enormous extent that their little dead bodies have been gathered into piles and used for manure. Dragonflies, often called horse stingers, are most harmless creatures so far as quadrupeds and men are concerned. 
The idea that they possess stings is a popular delusion. The long, quivering bodies are powerless to do an injury, and if they could bite, they do not. No doubt, in the insect world, a different tale would be told, for the dragonfly is a ferocious wild beast, a veritable dragon there. In all the different stages of its existence, he is voracious to a degree, and in the latest full-blown stage, he is as ready to make a meal of spiders and centipedes as of smaller insects. One African dragonfly is bright red in color, with brilliant opal-hued eyes. Another, a native of India, has brown upper wings, the other two being of vivid metallic green. Again, a dragonfly of Borneo possesses wings crimson, blue, and green, according to the lights in which they are viewed. Even in England we have a kind, the wings of which glitter, with iridescent hues of metallic purple, green, blue, and gold. It is a pity that all these radiant colors fade after death. Many insects are helpless in a strong breeze, but the powerful wings of the dragonfly, beating the elastic air, are equal to this emergency. Like a vigorous rower, delighting to make way against a rapid stream, the dragonfly seems to rejoice in mastering the wind. A remarkable piece of mechanism exists in the wing of the dragonfly. We all understand how a rower makes his way. With the stroke that sends him forward, he presents the breath of his oar to the water, so as to have a strong pull against it. Then instantly he feathers his oar, letting the water resistance act only on the edge of the blade. But with the vigorous strokes of a dragonfly's wing, how is it that the upward stroke does not exactly neutralize the downward stroke, so as to keep the insect just moving to and fro in one place? Simply because they are not mere up-and-down strokes. By a wonderfully delicate mechanical arrangement, a kind of little muscular spring, the wings are feathered with every upward stroke. The downstroke makes full use of air resistance to send the insect darting forward, but in the upstroke the edge of the wing slips through the air, meeting with slight opposition. Insects in general do not merely float on the air, like balloons, through excessive lightness. Most of them are so light and weak that the breeze sweeps them away, yet each has its own weight, and each, in perfectly still air, would sink to the earth but for the rowing action of its wings. A common housefly beats the air about six hundred times each minute, thus making a continuous humming sound. Without some degree of weight, there cannot be real flight. The helplessness of locusts in their migrations has been mentioned earlier. They do not fly like dragonflies against the wind, but are swept along by it. Locusts generally are not good for much in the way of flight. When about to depart on a long aerial journey, they make preparation by blowing themselves full of air. Footnote. From Professor Duncan's Transformation of Insects. End of footnote. So full that the air tubes of their bodies generally flat, bulge out and become rounded. This makes them lighter than usual to begin with. Then... The exertion of flying heats their bodies, and the air in the air tubes grows warmer, therefore lighter. The locust thus really does float partly, through lightness, as used wrongly to be supposed, of all flying creatures.
but the very fact that it does so makes it to some extent like a balloon the mere sport of the winds we have in england some insects which can fairly compete in appearance with their brethren of foreign lands but it is not so with butterflies think what our world would be without flowers or butterflies without fair ornaments of the earth and of the air ocean certain unlovely insects help to purify the physical atmosphere but beautiful things such as flowers and butterflies help to soften and purify the mental atmosphere is one more needful than the other butterflies in countless varieties are known to us from the tiny blue things skimming over english meadows to its splendid cousin of the himalayas with radiant tailed wings peacock marked in shaded blue and green one exquisite native of tropical america we are told seems to partake with the gems the full glory of color it is scarcely possible to conceive of a living creature that can surpass this insect in absolute magnificence the upper surface is radiant azure as if composed of a sheet of thin mother-of-pearl when the light falls in the right direction the color is so intense that the eye can scarcely endure its radiance and again of another we learn the upper surface of this butterfly is rich shining opaline blue with a decided dash of green in some lights the wings are edged with a broad band of black in which is a row of little white spots another fine creature found in south america is known as the owl butterfly it is very large in size the wings being on the outside a chocolate brown shot with blue and green the curious part of this butterfly is the underview there when the wings are well opened a distinct and remarkable picture of an owl's face is seen the general surface is dun-colored with brown mottlings in the center of each lower wing is a painted eye and the body of the butterfly serves perfectly for beak a preserved specimen of this creature is or was recently to be seen at the crystal palace i can vouch after sight for the striking resemblance to the face of an owl the dead-leaf butterfly is a no less singular instance of imitation in form so often seen among insects this kind belongs to the himalayas though found elsewhere also when open and in the act of flight there is nothing unusual about it but when the wings are closed and the animal is still there is every appearance of a dead leaf brown and veined a dried specimen in a glass case sent home years ago from india has drawn often the remark from a passing observer why you've got a dead leaf in there a very different kind of insect from the butterfly displays the same tendency to imitation in appearance i mean the walking stick insect some creatures of this kind are the most complete copies of dried sticks and certainly are more curious than beautiful they are among the largest known insects one variety is as big round as a man's thumb and when its legs are outstretched it is fifteen inches long another found in new guinea has hind legs the thighs of which are half an inch thick and over an inch and a half long while its eggs rival those of a hummingbird in size it has big scratching body thorns or spikes 
and sharp leg prickles. On the whole, one would prefer not to come across any such monster insects in our English woods or meadows. End of chapter 35